Hey, I'm Scott Gaffney, and you're listening to the Snowbrains Podcast. Welcome to the Snowbrains Podcast, where it's my job to interview the most intelligent people in the snow sports industry and pass their fascinating knowledge on to you, our listeners. I'm your host, Miles Clark. I'm a professional free skier, a professional mountain guide, a UC Berkeley molecular cell biology graduate, the founder and CEO of Snowbrains, and I was such a hardcore ski bum right after college that after buying my midweek ski pass and paying rent up front for the winter, I lived on only $10 per day for six months of the year. I didn't go to bars, nor eat at restaurants. I didn't even own a car. I worked in the city six months per year, saved up five grand, then skied every day and didn't work for six months per year. It was a wild dichotomy of an existence, but when December 1st rolled around every year, I was absolutely ecstatic. Today's Snow Rains podcast is brought to you by Tamarack Resort. Nestled in the West Central Mountains of Idaho, Tamarack boasts 1,100 acres of terrain, 2,800 vertical feet, and an independent spirit and community vibe unmatched in the West. Today's Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Alta, an independent ski area where the soul of skiing continues to live on for 84 winters. Alta is a skiers-only mountain celebrated for its frequent powder days, averaging 540 inches of snowfall each winter. My guest today is Scott Gaffney. Scott is the filmer, director, and editor of the famous Matchstick Productions, who make some of the strongest ski movies in existence. Scott is literally the G in Shane McConkey's Game of Gnar, which stands for Gaffney's numerical assessment of radness, that we all love so well. He even edited and produced the movie Gnar. Scott has been all over the world and has witnessed some of the most face-melting ski sessions that have ever gone down. His love for Squaw Valley Palisades Tahoe shines through all he does, and his stories of spending time with and watching the progression of his best friend Shane McConkie are absolutely golden. Scott's affinity for surfing in freezing cold Lake Tahoe during the winter is weird and fascinating. Scott is a world-class skier in his own right and is still crushing it at 52 years old. Scott is truly an inspiration, and what he's seen go down in the ski world is intensely unique. Hello, Scott. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. How are you, man? I'm doing all right. How are you doing, Miles? I'm stoked, man. I've been skiing. It's been good here in Utah. I can't complain. And so when did you ski last? I skied the second day that uh, Palisade Tahoe was open back in the end of October or maybe November 1st. How many days do you ski per year? I'd say these days I ski roughly 100 days a year. Uh, that's a lot. I used man. to get in a whole lot more when I was younger, but more responsibilities now and kids and Gotta get things done once in a while. I topped out on 206 one year, and that was all Northern Hemisphere. Damn. And I probably averaged 150 for quite a while. Wow, that's impressive, man. How do you define yourself? I've got to say I define myself as a dad, first and foremost, and a skier, second most, and then a filmmaker, I suppose. Where's your favorite place to ski? I have to say right home here in Tahoe. There are obviously better places that you can go, but 
as far as being comfortable with a certain area and, and really liking terrain, I made this a home for a reason. And this, that's because this place rules when you're on snow, when the <laughs> snow's good, it's real feast or famine here. If you had to branch outside, what are, what are your favorite mountain ranges besides the Sierra? As far as what I do for a job in terms of making movies, British Columbia is it, you know, that's, that's the place you go to, to make things happen. And there's always Alaska and Alaska is a bit of a hit or miss, but obviously when you hit it on when it's right, there's no place that's better. I like everywhere you can go on snow. <laughs> really? What would you do if you couldn't ski? I would surf. And, and that's, we're that's get, a natural second, second yeah play. i love it and that's the same for me you know and that's the same for jeremy jones a lot of people we talk to here hey, what scares you the most in the mountains clearly avalanches and snowpacks scare, sketchy snowpacks is and, really the most uncomfortable situations you get out there where do you encounter sketchy snowpacks the most in your travels anywhere in the rockies i don't want to you know single those guys out whoever lives in the rockies but there's a reason we make movies and film all in coastal snowpacks because it's a lot more reliable, less hitting pepper and less chance of avalanches. What do you love most in the mountains? For me, I mean, mostly it's about going downhill. Like I, I love all the aspects that I can get into the soulful side of things and just being out there in the mountains and enjoying the trees and the blue skies and the animals and all that. But the number one thing that I enjoy is going downhill and jumping off of stuff. What's the funniest accident you've had in the mountains? You know, I was around Shane for a lot of the year, a lot of years. So uh, maybe shooting saucer boy and just encountering people. Like <laughs> we climbed to the top of Mount Talak one year and he was in his full saucer boy outfit with a bottle of beam and, you know, cresting the top of Talak. And there's a few people sitting up there. Can you imagine their faces of saucer boy? <laughs> Stumbling on up or to the top of the mountain. And what might be the scariest accident you've had in the mountains? Scariest moment I probably had was filming with Richard Perman in Days of My Youth in 2014 up in Seward, Alaska. And he just got caught in a slide and bounced off a rock wall Ooh. and then uh, partially buried. It was the end of his trip. We had a race in and dig him out he wasn't fully buried but he was injured the fact that he wasn't fully buried didn't make it it wasn't as scary as it could have been but it was it was still a pretty tense situation that yeah, sounds terrifying any situation like that is scary especially if it was yeah. a you know season ending injury kind of situation how many friends have you lost in the mountains now probably close to double digits you know tahoe had a really bad run for quite a while and, and why do you think that happened in tahoe it was just freakish. There were just all kinds of bad things uh, going on for a while and nothing was related, nothing one thing related to another. But that's that's the problem with what we do is, you know, we, we like the danger and the danger also takes from us. So how many avalanches have you been in? I haven't been in anything serious. I haven't been wow. in anything that I didn't try to create. Wow, like, that's huge. Slide riding can be, you know, a little bit of fun sometimes <laughs> when, when you know what you're dealing with. Yeah. But uh, I tend to err on the side of being safe as opposed to pushing pushing the snowpack. And do you see a lot of avalanches when you're filming? Not really. We we see a lot of, you know, there are a lot of surface shallow shallow avalanches that might happen where uh, it's just new storm snow that's not so not so deep and not so dangerous. 
and it might look pretty intense on film because it's all cracking and whatever, but not that deep, not that scary when you're actually there. So the, the one with Perman was probably the sketchiest one I've been involved with. But other than that, I really haven't been exposed to a whole lot. Have you ever sure. been hurt while skiing? No, <laughs> I've been hurt head to toe. That's a lie because I've never hurt my toe, but <laughs> I, had, I had a spiral fracture of my tib fib when I was five years old. Oh, skiing? It's gone on from there to, you know, destroying one knee, blowing the ACL on the other, back injuries, collarbones broken, many stitches. You've been on ski trips all over the world. Uh, you know, what was your favorite ski trip? That's a tough one. I've been traveling for filming skiing for maybe 25 years now. Phew. So it's it's hard to really pinpoint any particular one. I've had a couple really good trips to Norway and oh. I've never really hit the snow grade up there, but just being in the locations like up in the Lingen Alps this is one of the highlights of my career. I would say with, I was there with Seth Morrison and C.R. Johnson, Pep Fuges one year. Wow. And another year with Stian Hagen, Eric Pollard and Jamie Burge. And that's just a super cool place uh, to go to. Been down in Peru for a trip. That was more of a ski mountaineering trip. I guess the place I've been in Russia was a really cool trip with uh, Eric Pollard. We hit it really well before the Olympics came to Krasnaya Polyana. Is there anywhere you would not go back to? No, I think everywhere you go to has its own plus to it. You know, I've, uh, like I'd say, one of the most ridiculous places I've ever shot was the town ski hill in Ure with Bobby Brown and Alex Schlopey. And it's just this little tiny Poma lift that goes up, what, like 200 feet. And we had a blast shooting there. You know, it was the worst. <laughs> it was like the ugliest little set up in the ugliest conditions. They had little creeks rolling through and they had like a, an orange traffic cone sitting by this one little bump. <laughs> and and we had the best time. And, and so it all comes down to your perspective and your attitude when it comes to being somewhere. And, you know, places that are worse than others, you just kind of smile and roll with it. At least that's the way I like to look at it. What's the worst job you've ever had? I haven't had a lot of really horrible jobs. That's another matter of perspective. You know, I've worked on some construction sites, just doing some labor stuff. I've bust tables, but I've never really felt like I had an awful job. How about what was your best job? My best job is maybe the one I'm in right now, making ski movies. I thought you'd and, say that. Yeah. And being a raft guide for a lot of years in Canada, oh. back east on the Ottawa River was a, a really good job for a lot of summers as well. You know, tell us a little bit about that. You were really into kayaking. And, and I remember in 1999, I think it is, uh, in the ski movie that you made, you show people doing tricks and stuff like that on, on kayaks and white, riding waves. What was your experience with water and whitewater? I, I took like a kayak school where I ended up working uh, the year before I graduated from high school. And the next summer I ended up working up there and I spent maybe 10 summers working on this river. And I was uh, both a raft guide and kayaker and kayak instructor and it's just, it was like the perfect balance for skiing, like to go from being a skier to switching seasons, going into that summer job. And the mentality in, in kayaking is really the same as skiing in terms of looking at lines, playing on rivers, the whole bit. And the two sports really mirrored each other as they changed in the late 90s too. 
with fat skis and boats were changing and they're really a reflection of each other. It was a really fun job, but I think when I moved to California, there, there was a period where a lot of people were dying kayaking and I kind Hiking's of- Kayaking's gnarly, man. It is get, gnarly. I don't know if you've seen Scott Lindgren's, Scott Lindgren's film, River, River Runner. No. And he actually mentions that in that movie where a, a lot of, he lost a lot of friends in a span of like two or three years. Ooh. And I watched that happen. I kind of got turned off from paddling for a while. And the, the sport was going in crazy directions that I didn't really want to go. And I sh- probably shouldn't have gotten fully out of it, but I could, you know, you can just tone it back. But for some reason I wasn't so into it. And then I got into surfing and that kind of put my focus on that a little bit more than white water. What's your favorite ski movie? Blizzard of Oz. I'll, I'll pull out the cliche. Uh, and Blizzard of Oz really set my life in motion. Hot dogs right up there. Marcus Ader's new edit, the ultimate run I thought was pretty insane. I saw your uh, review of that. Tell us just another little bit about Marcus's edit. Uh, it, it's funny because Marcus and I worked on coming up with that concept back in around 2016. We actually came up with it shortly. It was right around Candide came out with one of those days when we already had the idea rolling. We're like, okay, we had to need to sit on this for a little bit. But then I think it was in 2016. I actually went to Italy to start shooting with Marcus on this ultimate run idea. And his dad drove this, this huge bus up a little tiny European road up to where Marcus could possibly jump over this bus. And the very first shot we were setting up for, I don't even think I had the camera rolling. He was just doing a speed check before the bus was even there. And he punched fronted and dislocated his shoulder. Oh, and that, that was the end of it. And <laughs> I, ended, I was hanging in Italy and he was the one guy I was there to shoot working on this project. But I ended up calling up, we called up Bobby Brown and Sean Jordan and they came out and we shot with them for the next couple of weeks while Marcus was laid up. Ooh. But that put that whole project on the back burner. And then Marcus had other distractions. He started the free ride world tour, I think maybe the next year or a year later, a couple of years later. And with this, this uh, concept of the ultimate run still in his head. And then he finally, he got a hold of me. He's like, you know, I want to do this. I want to make this shoot happen, but I want to do it with this European crew because that was who he had access to. And he wanted to go bigger than we would have been able to devote time to it because he, he put a full two years into that project of yeah. just doing that. Wow. And the legs of steel crew that he worked with just, I'd say they absolutely nailed it. If you haven't seen it, check out Marcus's edit. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh, yes. the, ultimate, the ultimate run. Yeah, it was the ultimate run. And the funny thing is we, we had that name going and that, that's what we called Colby West uh, skit in attack of La Nina. Yeah, oh, okay. I, I don't remember that. It was the ultimate run. There was actually a song where he's singing the ultimate run, which is actually Matt Reardon from uh, Tahoe. Oh, I love that. Singing the song, but uh, yeah, it's all about the ultimate run. But it was that was a spoof where we had green screen shots and and all that. <laughs> I don't know if you remember. Oh, Colby. I remember it now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he does like a switch backflip over a bear, a yes, fake yeah. bear, and totally. smacks <laughs> saves saves my kid. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and that's what I love about the, the movie making that you do is how you bring that humor into it that uh, I think you sort of pioneered that and it's caught on a little bit in other places, but nobody seems to do it as well as you, I don't think. How, how did that come about? How did you start bringing humor into the ski movies? Because I think that, that is the, the, the piece that draws me in the most. I, I think the way I look at ski movies is first and foremost, they should be entertaining. And 
I've always just been moved by stupid humor movies, <laughs> you know, like the airplane series, like Caddyshack. that type of that type of move. Caddyshack, Dumb and Dumber. I really like juvenile stupid humor. <laughs> and I think there's no better way to entertain people than to, to make them laugh and, you know, shake their heads at how stupid people can be. And, and, and it's fun shooting that stuff. You know, it's, it's more entertaining for me as a filmmaker to involve things like that, like shooting the machete skit. And there's something about McConkey oh, so where funny. he's just going through the lineup. <laughs> like that was fun as hell to shoot. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> just had it, having that variety, I think is a good thing. And I think the most challenging part is writing that stuff to write something funny and then execute it is, is so difficult. So kudos. That, that is, a, that is actually a little scary part of it is uh, yeah. you never know what humor is going to land. Yeah. Like with disappear, we did a few years ago oh, with that, uh, you know, that fake, fake drug is it worked. It, it made people laugh, but you never quite know going into it. It seems like, a lot of the humor I saw with you was with some of the older stuff. And so to see you bring it back so strong in one of the newer movies, I was pumped. Yeah. And, and we'd had a serious movie the year prior, and I thought it was a, a time to do an about face. Like, I like giving people stuff that they don't see coming. And you're just mixing it up. Variety is the spice of life, right? Always is. Always is. What challenges you the most intellectually on a daily basis? morons on social media. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. No, that's... Uh, yeah. Social media is a, a crazy place and I actually do what I can to limit my exposure there because I feel like sometimes I get dumber. Well, let's but... jump into it right now. Um, so yeah, t- t- I've, I've seen you ha- like have a couple diatribes, you know, or rants occasionally basically saying, Hey, you know, I, I don't, I don't think social media, the internet's very good for people. And I, I'm just curious to hear your perspective. I just think people spend way too much time there. And there are way too many people who aren't authorities on matter who have a voice. And a lot of times it's the, the dumber, the louder they are. And people take it for what it is sometimes and, and are able to persuade each other to think of things a certain way that is totally off base. I, I don't think it's a very healthy environment when it comes right down to it. And I, I really, I've made a post last year talking about how you should not be doing things with the objective of making a social media post about it. Like go do things for the experience, not because you get to make a post. And you know that people do things so that they can make a post about it. I do that. that, And and I've been caught in the same situation. And I think that's a horrible thing. Like I was hiking... I'll, I'll spell it out. I was hiking up and I knew I was going to ski something naked. I was all alone last spring. And on the hike, I was thinking about what kind of post I'd make about it, about me skiing naked. And I wasn't taking in the environment around me at all. Mm. And that started pissing me off. And then I started crafting this, this post in my head about how it was pissing me off. And that was even sucking me further away from the fact that (laughs) I was out in these incredible mountains and experiencing this really cool day. And here my head is just just enveloped by this social media post. And I just was not happy about it. And and I took a break from it for a while after that. I just thought it puts us in the wrong headspace in a lot of different ways before, after, whenever. I agree because I, I do the same thing on a regular basis. But you know, I, I think that is telling. You know, you're naked in the middle of nowhere in the mountains, thinking about your social media post. You know, where you should yeah. be just 
really that's, enjoying that's just it. wrong yeah experience yeah. it first <laughs> yeah and then if you then if you find something out of the experience is worth telling about then do that but don't put don't put the post ahead of the experience and i've been there too so i'm not just criticizing others i'm criticizing myself too well and yeah i was all disappointed to myself for for kind of missing out on some of the experience of that day because i was thinking about social media What's your favorite book or books? I think the last book I read was The Emerald Mile, which was an experience of uh, racing a dory down the Grand Canyon during the flood stage in 1983. What has inspired you the most in your life? Aside from my parents and family, Greg Stump and Scott Schmidt and Shane McConkie. Right. And Greg Stump, uh, the filmmaker. and Scott Greg Schmidt, Stump, the, the filmmaker, famous. because as I, I mentioned earlier, I saw Blizzard of Oz. One night in a friend's house in college. And after seeing that movie, I walked out and my life got set in a certain motion. And so so to me, that's a breakthrough moment. Was there anything else that was a big breakthrough moment or that was it? That was it. The, the Blizzard of Oz scene, because I, I was in my third year of college and I was studying film and video production. Oh. But had no idea what I was going to do with it. I saw Blizzard of Oz and suddenly there was this potential of a whole different life that I looked at and was like, oh man, if I could. And so when I moved West from New York to Colorado in 1991, I bought a camera along the way, like kind of a high-end, high-eight camera. And I just set out to move to Colorado and see what I could do. And I just started filming. Wow. I love that. And did you ever have a mentor? I I didn't really have a mentor at the time. I, I ended up you know, somewhere along the way, I met up with Tom Day and he helped me uh, a oh, fair wow. bit with just film and, and getting the right gear and whatever it may be. But one thing led to another. Again, I didn't set out to make a career of it. It was just something I wanted to do and I wanted to be. How did you make your dreams into reality? You've kind of told us already, but was there anything that was uh, unique that you did? No, I think I just came into it at the right time where when I bought a camera and moved to Colorado, not everyone had cameras and the really top skiers didn't have outlets. So they saw, like I was skiing around Arapahoe Basin all the time and filming a little bit there. And some of the top skiers there, like Justin Patnode and Chris Carson, they were pro mogul skiers and there was nowhere for them to shine. Really. There weren't people filming movies. Um, I'd seen Justin Patnode in uh, groove Requiem, a, a stunt movie. And and I got talking to him and, and they kind of gravitated toward this guy with the camera, even though it was an absolute no name. And so I started shooting with those guys. And then I moved to Tahoe the next year and was shooting at Squaw. And so the timing was right because all these guys wanted someone to be filming them and I wanted to be filming someone. And so it worked. <laughs> That's perfect. Timing is everything. And you, I hear that a lot when I interview people here. Timing is so huge. All right. So. With the in-depth stuff, I really I have to start with with the game of NAR, uh, with with the history of NAR, because the game of NAR is is Gaffney's numerical assessment of radness, and you're the Gaffney, I believe. And and NAR is from the book Squallywood, written by your brother Rob Gaffney, and it's uh, also celebrated in the movie NAR. And it's just become this this cultural phenomenon all over the ski and snowboard world, and I mean all over the world. People all over the globe know about NAR. They give pro callouts and they play the game of NAR itself. So first of all, can you tell us what NAR is and where it comes from? NAR is a concoction of Shane McConkie 
and a few of us, it was just his brainchild. Like we'd sit around, I used to live with Shane and uh-huh. we'd sit around and discuss stupid stuff in skiing and things that made us laugh. And, and he started coming up with a point system. And I, I think one of, <laughs> one of Shane's most brilliant things was, whereas a lot of people would come up with really cool ideas and just laugh about it and say, Oh, that'd be cool if we did that. Shane is a guy who carried through with things. So uh-huh. instead of just thinking these were funny thoughts and leaving them be, he basically started writing things down and he started putting this whole thing on paper of all these ridiculous things you could do to get NAR points, you know, whether it's cooking breakfast in line or kissing, I think kissing Tom Burt's boots or having lunch with Debbie Dutton, a, a squad legend. He just came up with all these ideas and my brother was making the book and he offered Shane a place to put all these stupid ideas. And that became the chapter of NAR. So the G stands for, it's either my brother or me. So after Shane died, unofficial networks came to Rob and said, Hey, how about we make a contest out of this? And we didn't really see much coming out of that aside from, we, we thought squaw skiers would enjoy it, you know, uh-huh. being a real, uh, real intimate, personal look at squaw and they're mostly squaw skiers in it. We never pictured that taking off like it did. And do you think it was the movie that really got the idea out there? Yeah, for sure. Because the book was isolated. It was kept to, you know, if you lived in Tahoe, you might have that book. Right. But it was barely outside of the Tahoe region. A few people in Montana might have had it. And, you know, the word of mouth might have gotten it out there a little bit, but nothing like the movie being able to go out on the Internet. And the, the movie became a worldwide hit. And it was, that was totally unexpected. Yeah, it was a hit too. And, and especially all the adaptation you guys had to do, got kicked out of Squaw Palisades uh, and, and all that. And I, I was working, I was editor-in-chief of Unofficial Networks at the time. So that was really fun. I saw the first couple of days and then actually left on a trip. But uh, but yeah, what, a, what an experience, man. I wasn't even involved in the shooting of that. You just edited, they, they, right? They, yeah, they just yeah. had this buttload of footage. Yeah. <laughs> and they they basically handed it to me and said, we don't know what to do with this. What to make of it. Tim Conrad at Unofficial came up with the idea of using wing music throughout. And right. They had a, a money guy who actually was able to make that happen. And we just told a story with it, with that huge mass of footage. And it seemed to really click with a lot of people. You did you did well, man. That must have been a monster project for you, especially and you're already editing the matchstick production movies at the same time. Yeah. Um, so it, was, it was a little uh, that was a long stint of editing, which is not the part I really enjoy of sitting on my butt in a chair for a long time looking at a computer screen. How does it feel when the movies come out though? There there's definitely satisfaction in that. There's always editing's a tough thing because you could keep going and going and going and making things better. Right. Um, you basically have to have a cutoff point at some point. Mm-hmm. Or else you can drive yourself crazy by just dealing with these these fine details of trying to make something better. So it, it's nice when you're cut off and then it gets in front of an audience and they all react positively. That's got to be fun for you to go to the premieres. It, it is fun, but you can beat yourself up at those premieres too. Oh, I'm sure. party time. I'm sure. What are your favorite ways of maybe favorite funniest ways of getting NAR points? Personally, one of the most fun is skiing naked. On a different side of things is is getting the first line of the year somewhere. I think that's always an achievement to be oh, the first I, I one. I forgot to, that's a first one point. to ski something. Yeah, oh, because okay. you're 
you're kind of making a statement like, okay, this line's open. If you're the first one to get tracks somewhere. Nice. And how about some of the, what are the, some of the funnier things uh, that to get in our points? The radness yell is always a good one. The pole whacking on a cornice, the radness yell of the ego claim is, is one of the fun. You don't see that too much, but if you ski up to a bunch of people you don't know and say, I just want you to know I'm the best skier on the mountain. I mean, and just ski away. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's a pretty hilarious thing when you really think of it. Like, what do you really leave those people thinking if they yeah. don't know NAR? I mean, a lot of people know now, you know, what a pro call out is and all that. But if you don't know and someone were to actually ski up to you and say, I want you to know I'm the best skier on the mountain and then skis away, like, Think of, think of that person. It's so good. Experiences. <laughs> I love when Matthias Sullivan does it in uh, in the yeah. movie NAR. He, yeah. he does a great one. He really does. <laughs> it just takes them totally blindsides them. I love that. How often do you personally get pro call outs? I've only skied one day this year and I got one on my second run. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and there was one, I was filming Tom Wallace last year at, at the Palisades Tahoe Park. And I was in this bad position where people were just going by me nonstop, like feet away from me. And so I got called out maybe six or seven times in one day. Whoa. But then I can go for quite a while without getting a call out. And tell us what a call out is. A call out is uh, someone saying, hey, so-and-so, I can't believe you're a pro. I'm so much better than you. I love and, it. <laughs> and for pro skiers, that's one of the most annoying things of NAR is that they get that all the time. And, and, you know, it happened right after NAR. I remember Colby West telling me a story about how he had crashed in the X Games on the very first rail, and he was sitting super dejected down in the tent at the base. Some kid poked his head in and said, Colby West, I can't believe you're a pro. I'm so much better than you. And this is right after he crashed on the first rail, and he had no idea what NAR was. And just the fact that some some kid of cut called him out, he was totally beaten down by it. That's pretty vicious, actually. Even if you know it's a joke, uh, yeah. it's just a rough time to do that to somebody. Yeah. I love it. What are some of the craziest, most kind of out there moments you've seen with people playing the game and are other people around you? I can't say I've seen a ton, and, and I miss that whole experience of, of shooting it. Obviously, that would have, I've heard people were just skiing down onto Shirley lift of the, in this one area at Palisade Saho and, and just hopping on the chair naked. No, <laughs> um, the, the nakedness is, is one of the most bizarre things that you can see because it's always funny seeing someone, someone naked skiing around. Well, I love that Shane McConkey came up with those ideas and I'd love to learn. I'd love to share with the audience a little bit more because maybe not many people knew him as well as you. Shane's my personal favorite skier of all time. He's an absolute legend in the ski industry for, for a myriad of reasons. And, and people would kill to ski with Shane and he was one of your regular ski buddies. So I kinda yeah. start, I'd, love, I'd love to start from the beginning. So where did you, how did you meet Shane? My first time I ever met him was at a pro mogul, mogul competition that I was I just had a camera out. I was shooting my friend, Justin Patnode, um, skiing in Arapaho Basin, and Shane was there. And I caught wind of who Shane was because he had delivered pizzas to my brother's house in Boulder while wow. my brother was going to school there. And he had seen a bunch of skis lined up at their house. And he said, you guys are big skiers. I've got a movie premiere happening at, at CU Boulder in a, in a few days. And so they went to check out the movie that this pizza delivery guy was in. <laughs> <laughs> Domino's delivery man. And it turned out that Domino's guy absolutely ripped and his name was Shane McConkey. And, he, and that year he was skiing in the pro mobile tour and 
it might've been that year or the next year, I ended up shooting, talking to him a little bit there and introduced myself and say, Hey, you just keep my friend, Rob and my, my brother, Rob. And we just kind of developed this relationship. And, and what did Shane mean to you? What was your relationship like with him? We were best friends and it was a real simple relationship where it was such a good mutual relationship and me being a cameraman, him being a skier. And we started our careers right around the same place, same time at the same level where I was busting tables in 95. He was busting tables in 95, not knowing where we were going to go with it. We would just go out and shoot any day. We didn't have to shoot the craziest stuff in the world, but with him, it was either funny or crazy. And he obviously blew up my career in a way. And I really helped accelerate his as well. Kind of a match made in heaven. I love that. And yeah. do you have any, do you have any good, funny Shane stories that people might not know too much about you? You could share here. One of the funniest things I did with him once is we went caving one day. There's, you know, off of big chief at, at, in Tahoe, there's a caving area where you can, you can climb down to ice in the middle of summer. And at the end of the day, we were driving by a friend of ours house, Rob. And we thought, why don't we go mess with Rob? We knocked on his door. He wasn't around. We climbed up the balcony in the backside, went into his house, and he was a neat freak. And we rearranged all his pictures in his house. But one time, Shane dropped his pants and put a picture of Rob's parents in front of his junk. And I took a Polaroid picture of it and put it on his fridge. Uh, oh, shit. And it was just... And we just did a whole bunch of messing around with his house when he wasn't even there and then and took off before he even came home. There are just all kinds of moments like that where just, just pranks nonstop, really. He's almost a pain in the ass to be friends with in a way. Well, that's kind of what some of the best relationships are, though, when you really think <laughs> about it, is the closer you are to someone, the more you like to irritate them and mess with them. I mean, you, you can get away with the it. way it is. And so we're, we've always been that way. I love that. What do you think was Shane's biggest accomplishment in skiing? Changing the game. I, I think he did it more so than anyone else because he did it on several different levels. There are a whole lot of skiers who have changed the game in, in the skiing aspect or maybe a technology aspect or whatever it might be. But Shane did, Shane did it with both gear and with how we look at mountains and he also changed the game as far as entertaining people. You know, what was Shane's involvement with adopting and popularizing fat skis back in the 90s? That was a, a pretty simple concept. We were all watching snowboarders just fly down mountains, whereas we were doing hop turns. And anytime you try to catch speed on your skinny skis and deep pal, you'd kind of get this drag to you that would often send you over the bars or whatever it might be. It just was inefficient. And that's another one of those situations where Shane thought of something and rather than just thinking, oh, that would be cool if we could do that. He thought about applying that to his actual skiing and, and what do we have to do differently? And of course, there were some fat skis out there. There were Atomic Powder Pluses back in the day, and he saw those as being a really efficient tool in powder, just something that's going to float way better. And so it totally made sense to him. And he convinced Volant to make the Volant chub. And, you know, a lot of people had a really hard time accepting them because they just looked weird. Short, fat skis, that just didn't make sense. But to Shane, it totally did. I love that. And then and then rockered skis too, right? And so 
Shane got on the fat skis. I think I, I credit Shane with popularizing the fat skis. And I love the quote in one of the movies says, you know, hey, if you don't want to ride them, that's fine, but I'm not going to wait for you at the bottom. But then rocket skis seems to be completely his idea. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how he developed that and, and how that went down? Actually, this is kind of funny because he credits me with coming up with the idea. All right. Because he had a bunch of people at Volant that were coming out to ski test skis and they had a bunch of new skis right off the presses. And we had kind of like a placebo ski in there, which was a pair of mine that were actually bent. Oh. And so we spent this day skiing in fairly soft snow and we were skiing fingers, lines, whatever, on these skis all day. And at the end of the day, everyone's asking, okay, what do you think of these? What do you think of those? And I basically said, you know what? I kind of prefer my skis more than anything else. (laughs) I've been skiing these bent, inadvertently rockered skis. And I didn't clue in at all. So I never take credit for coming up with the rocker concept. It was Shane that took what I said and thought, wait a second, that totally makes sense to have skis that are shaped that way. Like you would never make a surfboard with concave. You would never make a water ski that's concave. It just doesn't make sense. And basically we're trying to float in the same way those sports are floating. That night he started drawing on a cocktail napkin at Plump Jacks at the base of Squaw the concept of a rockered ski and the spatula. Wow. I love that story. I remember when I first saw it, there was a little blurb just like in the upper corner of a, of a magazine. And I thought it was a joke because he was always joking. And then the next year they were a real thing. And then the yeah. following year I had a pair of spatulas. It was, yeah, you know, I, yeah I was, we all did. I, I remember <laughs> it was so cool. I went to Russia the next year with a pair of spatulas on uh-huh. and they were slow in getting all that any of that kind of gear, of but they had heard about it all. And so I couldn't hear what anyone was saying in the lift lines, but I'd hear, spatula. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was pretty, that, they were a total game changer. And I, I still remember like my first run on them. It was insane where you suddenly felt this whole new sensation of, of floating in snow. I, I miss those skis. I had them for a few years. I, I still think it's the fastest I could ever ski in powder because when you got going too fast, instead of doing a speed check turn, you could just change the angle of the ski, maybe 30 degrees and dump speed, but yeah. still be going perfectly straight, like not yeah. change your trajectory at all. And so you, whenever I got scared, like, oh shit, I'm going too fast. Just ooh, a little bit of an angle change, slow down, point them again and hit it. And I love yeah. that. I love And, that and even, that. even today, they there's no ski that can decelerate like the the no. spatula. So you, you saw Shane ski so many different things. Uh, what do you think might have been Shane's gnarliest run that you saw or, or got to view or film him do? It could have been a ski base. Oh, um, do, doing his quadruple back at Lover's Leap down in South Lake Tahoe was was pretty insane, and that was a scary thing. Something as simple as a ski base off the Palisades. You went off the front of Beck's Rock. Yeah, because low is actually scarier in base jumping, you know, and and that was really low. And and he didn't open that high above the ground and his pilot chute wasn't that far away from the rocks as he's going over the edge. So it was that was pretty gnarly. That's um, the gnarliest thing I've maybe ever seen live. I felt it looked like he caught wind or, you know, his chute started working about 30 feet off the ground. Right. Yeah, yeah. it was it was close. And as his wife or about to be wife, Sherry was was up there, too. And I just remember she was like. She was, her heart was beating. It was, that was sketchy. As far as skiing out, he, there was probably one line we did on a boat trip and in high society ski movie two, that was really scary. It was very exposed. And 
the guy didn't feel comfortable with it. None of us really felt comfortable with it. Shane knew it would be a six shot and he felt comfortable with it. And, and he went up and skied it. And it was just this hanging snow field to a mandatory air, but there was a waterfall of like a hundred feet going uh, of mm. snow, just pouring a hundred feet off this cliff. And he, he was making kind of delicate turns on the way down, but it was just the exposure to it was kind of gnarly. But what do you think was so special and just different about Shane? Like how did, why did he stand out so much? I think what made Shane stand out is, is something that I've mentioned where he just took ideas and, and ran with them. Whereas most of us would kind of dream about something. He went the extra distance with it and, and tried to apply it, whether it was in comedy, whether it was in gear design, whether it was what is possible in skiing. He questioned what was possible and then he went and tried it rather than sat and died with his hopes. You know, he just, he, he wanted to see th things through. So he was like, while well, I was filming him the day, he learned the switch front flip and basically invented the switch front flip. That was good. And obviously you can think about it, you know, you can think, okay, this kind of makes sense, but does it really work? And rather than wonder if it works, he went out and tried it. And right around that same time, a few people were doing switch backflips. And Shane was like, I'm going to try that. So he learned the switch backflip in no time. Like, I think he stuck everyone he tried. Whoa. And he's like, I wonder if you could do a switch half and, and like a flare. And so then he tried that and it worked. And he's like, I wonder if you can do a switch full. And this was a time where, you know, Whoa. this stuff just wasn't being done. He was just experimenting with it. And they weren't necessarily the most styly tricks in the world, but he was testing what was possible. And he was just one of those guys who wanted to try something entirely new and he'd give her. And all of this is in the movie, my favorite ski movie of all time, your movie, 1999. And it, watching that as a kid just blew our minds. You know, we were just out of college and seeing this stuff and, and just that it was happening at Squad or Palisades Tahoe right in front of us was so exciting and, and just mind bending. You know, of all the things that Shane did, on top of it, he was inventing tricks in the park as ridiculous. And I think what you're, what you're talking about too, I really think of that too, that Shane had focused attention to detail and then execution, which I'd say most ski bums have none of those three. So it's uh, right. They made him stand out. What do you think Shane would be doing right now? If he was still around, he would be doing the same things that we saw him do for years. I think he'd be spending a lot of time with his daughter too, skiing with his daughter trying to help her excel and enjoy the outdoors. But as far as pushing himself, it all depends on injuries because he, he amassed a lot of injuries for a lot of years, but he was just a natural, such a natural talent that I think he'd still be absolutely ripping. And who knows, he could be like Kelly Slater and just still appearing in movies and, and blowing people's minds. That's how I picture, picture it too. I, I know he wouldn't be doing the freestyle side quite as much, but he would love watching where the sport is today and what people are doing for sure. Like all, all the nose butters off cliffs. He'd watch Marcus, Marcus Aders edit and just be like, yes, <laughs> this is freaking awesome. Yeah. And I think he gets a lot of credit for where skiing is and, and what, what people are doing now, including Marcus Eder. Yeah. Uh, I think that's pretty special. Today's Snow Brains podcast is brought to you by Tamarack Resort. You might come to Tamarack for the views that unfold across the valley or the unspoiled terrain and vast open bowls. Maybe you'll come to uncover a place that's a little different, 
that's down to earth and at home on the path less traveled. But we know you'll come back because there's a community of people at Tamarack who make you feel like you're in the right place at the right time. Today's Snow Brains podcast is brought to you by Alta. With an 84-year history, Alta is a place that is steeped in history and tradition. We're not talking about your grandfather's or grandmother's mothball ski sweater tradition. We're talking about the birthplace of avalanche research in North America kind of tradition. Alta is a place where five independent lodges still offer the tradition of family-style dinners and a place that has ski bars that generations of skiers have frequented. I was going to dive into more of the Squaw Valley Palisades Tahoe, but you kind of we've kind of brushed on a lot of that, you know, how you ended up there, why you like it there. What do you think is so special about, about Squaw Valley Palisades Tahoe? I can't think of any other ski area out there that is such a playground that Palisades Tahoe is. Just the amount of cliffs, the amount of good landings, the amount of fun, scary, playful terrain that you can get into and out of quickly. And so basically. You can really challenge yourself for a moment and then be back to safety. And so you can really push those limits and then you can apply those, those kinds of things you learn elsewhere in bigger mountains. And do you think that's what the, all, so many pro skiers have come out of Palisades Tahoe? Do you think that it could be a big reason why they're able to step it up and do so well in places like Alaska? For sure. I mean, it's, it's that playground and it's, and it's that getting comfortable with scary situations just and just building on it a little bit here and a little bit there and a little, more and more you can just keep stepping up your game it's, and it's so easy because all you have to do is move over five or ten feet and something gets that much gnarlier there and i can't think of any place in in the world as far as ski areas where you have so much terrain that is really easy right here and really gnarly right next to it and and so you get to dabble in it if you had to leave Tahoe and, and, and leave Palisades, Tahoe and Squaw, where would you go? What other ski town could work for you? I probably want to go small. And I've, I've had a really good time skiing at Whitewater, BC. Oh, yeah. I think, I think places like that are super cool. I'd want to stick with a fairly coastal snowpack, I'd say. I, I think that's what turned me off from living in Colorado for a few years is, man, it's scary to ski there midwinter. You know, anything in the back, way too many people lose their lives. And you had to probe every cliff you wanted to hit and, mm-hmm. and whatever. So I, I would stick somewhere in the, the far west, Jackson and West. I think Bridger Bowl is one of the raddest places in the world. My parents live in Bozeman, but Bridger is a little bony snowpack for me as well. Maybe with climate change, as it gets warmer and warmer, that place will get pastier and pastier snow and become one of the highlight areas for sure. What would you have renamed Squaw Valley Palisades Tahoe if it was your decision? Ooh, Narnia. I don't know. <laughs> I think it could have worked. <laughs> you know, it's. It, I, I would have liked to have seen some kind of native word that still kind of has that feel of the heritage of the valley. Uh, I think there's some real power in the fact that when the Polsons came here back in the mid uh, 1900s, there were natives still weaving baskets in the valley. I think it would have been cool to have something that that paid tribute to that heritage. Although I, I'm not sure, so sure the Washoe wanted that because they didn't want a business uh, corporation to right. have that feel to it. You know, it's, it's different naming the Valley and a corporation that is based in the Valley. So that makes sense. 
And the yeah. Washu is uh, the the Washu is the name of the tribe who lived in Squaw Valley or in in Olympic Valley now or the Lake Tahoe area in general. Um, yeah. I'm not sure they wintered up there, but they definitely spent a lot of time up there and must have been magic before we all showed up. Right. Um, so one thing I want to jump into is when you're filming, you you film some of the very best athletes in the world, some of the very best skiers in the world. And I, I bet you've seen some insane sessions. So uh, in a session being, you know, a day, a week, you know, whatever, a trip, you're in a unique position as a filmer to see some of the best skiers on earth do this stuff. And in that position, I assume you've seen some insane things, like probably especially Alaska, British Columbia. So what might've been the best sessions you've ever witnessed uh, in person? Well, wow, there, there are a lot of Shane McConkie sessions uh, that I could talk about. There's Seth Morrison in Norway in 2003, I want to say. I, th- I think it was uh, focused when he was just – the conditions were actually fairly awful, and he was hucking backflips off of everything, just his, his uh, trademark massive backies. Pep Fugis and Eric Pollard in, in Russia was a highlight trip in 2005 for the hit list. Uh, I, I think an, another highlight trip was in – 2010, for the way I see it, I believe, up in Girdwood, Alaska, we were shooting with Cody Townsend, Henrik Winstead, and we didn't have a lot of days that year. We had a lot of downtime, maybe eight days of downtime, but we did catch some of the most amazing conditions I've ever shot and shot with. And Cody and Henrik just absolutely railed everything and stomped everything and just these most amazing heli shots I've ever gotten hanging out of the heli and we just basically crushed it for the final segment of that movie. What elements have to come together for just a face melting segment to go down? Way too many, way too, way too many <laughs> yeah. things that have to come together, which, which is, you know, part of skiing. skiing. I think skiing and surfing are really the only sports where you have so many variables that have to come together. And, you know, you have to get that stable snowfall. You have to get the blue skies. You have to get stable snowfall before the wind gets on it and and texturizes it or blows it away. You have to have the right amount of snowpack. You know, it has the snow has to be the right density to really look good. There, there are just way too many things. The light and, and light in Alaska in particular is one of the most most necessary things. You need full sunshine or else it's going to look like crap and, and skiers can't. Uh, see the way they should be able to. So there are just way too many things that have to come together. And that makes it that much more special when it does. Who are your favorite skiers? It depends what generation you're talking. All of them. Uh, you know, uh, I could go back. Oh, <laughs> I, I can't even begin because I'll just leave out people. My favorite skiers, my kids, my wife, yes. my brother, Rob. Yeah, Rob. My oh nephew, my Noah. As far as athletes, God, you go back to, to Shane and, and then oh, I'm just going to forget way too many. JT, CR, Ingrid, Michelle Parker. I'm trying to work through the seasons, through the generations here. The timeline. Yeah, I, I just keep going. I, I think I've had a lot of fun shooting with Abma over the years. Definitely one of my favorite people in the world to work with. Mark Abma. Roy Bushfield, just one of the most hilarious yes. people in the world to be around. And I haven't shot with the blondes yet, but they're they're going to be super fun when I get to link up with them. Marcus Ader is one of my favorite people to shoot with. Bobby Brown. You could just go on and on. And, and Sam Cooch these days. Oh, my gosh. An absolute talent. That's ridiculous. Um, Mind blowing. But, you know, there, there are just way too many people. I've gotten to work with a lot of really, really great skiers and really cool people over the years. 
Oh, as far as a favorite skier to watch, Candide still blows me away. And and he's almost 40 and doing what he's doing. Like people, people say, oh, 39 is not old. It's like, it's old for what he's doing. Oh, yeah. If you watch what he's doing, he's very old for what he's doing. Like he's got a shot in his latest clip where he does a zero spin, like a safety, like a super slow motion shot. He's doing a safety to a big old shifty, like the most steezy thing imaginable. It's this huge zero spin. Yeah, for what he's doing, no, the guy's insane. And I, I love the fact that Candide doesn't uh, play himself up at all. He, he doesn't just, talk. He doesn't talk. Yeah, like his, his movie, no few words, you know, it was, yeah. it was just... He doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't spew about himself. He just throws out a clip every once in a while that blows people away. And that's that. I was there the year he won the Freeride World Tour in Baby A in 2010. Mm-hmm. And I was working for Unofficial Networks. And I interviewed him right after the win, you know, after they'd done the podium and the champagne. And he was so mellow and so quiet. And he wanted to talk about other things. You know, I was like, dude, you just won the Freeride World Tour. And in my mind, he was like a park skier. I was like, how the hell did this happen? And he was like, yeah, it's fun. I like skiing. So I, I agree with you. His, it's so cool. His mentality and the way he's so, so humble. Very cool person to, to talk with, but uh, especially the way he skis is just ridiculous. Yeah. So Matchsticks Productions, I don't even know what your involvement is. I want to say that you're the editor, you're, you're a filmer, you might be a co-owner. How did you get in, get in with uh, Matchsticks Productions, which is a film company? I was making my own movies back in the late 90s, and I, I didn't know where I was going to go with it. I've worked with the Deloriers on a movie for the North Face in 96, 97. And then that was right when Steve Winter was involved in a heli crash. Oh. Um, Steve Winter was the founder of Matchstick Productions along with Murray Weiss and uh, they were called Real Adventure Films at the time but he was in a heli crash in Chile that killed two people and Steve broke his back and was oh. partially partially paralyzed so he did not have an option of going on snow Wow! and I was this kind of budding filmmaker we'd met at a, a uh, film festival in Crest Butte for a couple of years he actually let me crash on his couch because I was sleeping in my car nice. and it was like 20 below and I was freezing my ass off. And he said, how about you stay in my house this night after yeah. sleeping in my car for a couple of nights. And that was a nice thing. Yeah. And so after he was injured, they needed another filmer and I ended up linking with them and I probably shot like half of the movie six cents oh. in 1998 for matchstick. And that was kind of an eye opener for me. The next year I made my own movie again, 1999. I love having that flexibility of doing whatever you want and making a movie. And I absolutely hated the business side. And uh, Mm. I was not a self-promoter. I was not one for going out and getting money. I I didn't like any of that aspect. And Matchstick gave me the option of doing the part I wanted to without dealing with all the crap. And so in 2000, I joined them again for making the first ski movie. Ski movie one, I guess you could say. Yeah. And I've been with them ever since. So that's going on 20, 21 years. I've been editing them for, I don't know, 16 years or so. It's got to be tough making these ski movies year after year, especially since you're such an outdoorsy guy. And, you know, how much time do you spend editing every every year and how many hours per day? Way, way too much. Uh, (laughs) Editing is a tedious process. And when it comes to June, and like I typically get a drive in mid-May or so with all of our footage from the year. And wow. then you're going through the organizational process and then you get into the heavy editing. And 
I might be putting in like 65 hour weeks. Whoa. So for a good stretch of time through June, July, and August. And it, it wears on you for sure. I'm not a huge fan of that. And I, in some of me, it feels like I've missed out on my kids' lives a little bit <laughs> in the summertime because that's when they're free and I'm not free at all. And so I've, I've got to work on that. But there's something about seeing something through from the beginning to the end that I, that I do like and that, that I do want to be part of. Like I would have a, a tough time shooting and just handing off the footage like a lot of people do. Right. Um, you know, I want to tell that story or, or I want to see what I shot and I want to mold it and craft whatever I got and have it come out a certain way. And I'm, I'm thinking about that when I'm out in the field and I can't picture handing it off to someone else and having it turn into the same thing. So I do like going from the beginning to the end, even I- though it is a tedious process. And what are you doing to balance all that time sitting during those 65 hour weeks? Are you able to get outside a little bit or is no, it I'm, just... getting, I'm getting fat and out of shape. <laughs> so when Sometimes September, you just have to suck it up. huh? When September rolls around, it's time to get back in shape. I do three months of desperation to get back to it. Now, I, I really don't get out that much in the summertime. And my main thing, I don't, I don't mountain bike enough. You know, I'll go for a hike every once in a while. And I try to get out with my kids a little bit, maybe take them to the mountain bike park or something like that. But I really don't do a whole lot until September. And then I can breathe a little bit and get back on it and get my head going again. And and what do you think is the future of ski movies? You know, it would be easy to say that it's dying just because the internet. and, And I think... The internet has almost strengthened movies in a way it's, it's weakened them in one way because people are just inundated with footage all the time and have yes. access to it whenever they want. But at the same time, there's something about that vibe of bringing everyone together in the fall to, to get fired up. And it's a different feel seeing a movie in a theater than clicking on something on your laptop or looking at it on your phone. Like there's just such a stronger feel to it. And I hope they're going to go on forever. And and it's hard to see that happening because of there are so many outlets these days and money is going, you know, away from ski movies and more towards shorts and whatever it might be. But I hope they're there forever. I hope so too, because I agree it's getting together and that, that, that tribal, that community feeling of everybody there together at the same time. That is so infectious and so fun and, and really does get people inspired. So speaking of goals with skiing and, and getting fired up for the season, what are your goals? Because you're, you're 52 years old now and you still rip, man. So what, what are your skiing goals this year? You know, it, it all depends. One of my goals is that a knee, I heard a knee like in mid-May last year. Ah. And I thought it was maybe just a bone bruise. No, I thought it would go away, but I'm still feeling it. And that's what, six months later. So that's bugging me. And if, if I can get past that, like, I don't know what it is. But anyway, if my body was totally good, I want to do a bunch of stuff that I haven't tried, which would be, I really want to get like hand drag threes off of little drops. You know, I'm not going to go big. I know my place as a, I'll be 53 years old, and but I, I want to try nose buttering off some some drops as well. I think yeah. that looks fun as hell. Just more backies, more hucking. <laughs> I want to go bigger, bigger than I've been going. Just playful skiing. 
what are some of the ski goals you've accomplished in, in, in the past that you're real proud of? Uh, God, I, I don't really have goals that I'm necessarily proud of. Like that Misty seven that you were talking about Dude. Did back in ski movie too. So sick. I, I had only done maybe eight Misty's prior to that. Whoa. And I, it just was something that worked for me. Like I don't have great air awareness. I can't even do a cork and I'm too scared to try, you know, like a cork seven because I get lost doing things to the back. But for some reason, a Misty just felt natural to me. And for some reason, that particular line seemed like it was going to work. And it's, it's weird claiming it, but I think that might be the first time everyone, anyone had ever done like a flippy doodle of that nature in the middle of a line. At least it was probably the first one caught on film. Yeah, I'd, I'd never seen that happen, but it just seemed like natural, that movement. And like, I don't necessarily know what's going on in, in a flip like that, or <laughs> even at that time, but it felt natural. And I just took it to my feet off, what, like a 25 foot cliff or something like that. That's crazy. For our listeners, maybe you could describe it better, but basically it's a double drop uh, in mainline pocket at Squaw Palisades. And so you have to jump into just get to get to this takeoff. And I've checked this thing out a bunch of times and kind of hit it, but never like Scott. And it, it has a down off angle takeoff. It's a shitty jump, man. It it's was just, a weird takeoff a actually for that trick, but for some reason it made sense to me. I even did the co- candied pole plant right before it. Yeah, it's a gnarly but, cliff and you know, it just didn't make any sense. So well, me, then I, was so sick. I, I skied the rest <laughs> that day and was still filming and got a bunch of shots that day. Went back to try it again, like, four hours later for no. some reason. I don't know why. And I punch fronted and Ooh. Tommied and I was kind of enjoying the Tomahawk. Uh-huh. But at the very end of it, my head was buried in the snow and my runaway ski came flying down and tagged me in the top of the head and put like oh. a five inch gash in the top of my head. So there's actually a shot in my edit this year that shows blood all over my jacket. And that was, yeah. that was from that moment. But that's so. from a previous movie too, right? That was from Ski Movie 2, High Society. Okay, exactly. I was yeah, say, I've seen that before, though. Okay, yeah, you believe yeah. a lot. Do you get stitches? I got uh, staples. Staple, even better. Yeah. Even better. And I just healed from, I would gotten 30 stitches in my chin from Ew. doing something down at Parkasaurus, <laughs> down in a Big Bear. All right, tell us, tell us that story really quick. That's not 30 stitches in your I was mouth. I was filming at this Parkasaurus. It was a freeze event uh, of... You know, all kinds of park tricks. And there was this quarter pipe and I did a flare in the quarter pipe. I just took a free skiing lap or something like that. Did a flare in the quarter pipe over rotated and I slammed down forward. And I think my ski hit me right in the, right in the chin. And I was all alone except for the few people I was skiing with, but I went to the, I went to the emergency room at the bottom and talked to the doctor there. And she said, if, if you were my son, I would not have me do that because it was just basically splayed out. Wow. And she's like, you need to go to a plastic surgeon. And Ooh. so then I had to drive like an hour and a half down to San Bernardino or however oh, long yeah. I went down to San Bernardino. It's a long drive. And, and got stitches down there. That was super painful too because they uh. couldn't put it in enough anesthetic because it was already splayed out and they didn't want to swell it. They didn't want to blow it up anymore with too much fluid in there. Oh. So I remember I was getting the stitches and it was so painful because it felt like there was no anesthesia in there at all. And they were just, they had to put 30 stitches inside and out. Oh, 30 stitches takes a while. Yeah. But then when I got the staples, 
the anesthesia on the top of the head was great. And I was just like, chung, 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 chung. It's I was like, oh, that's the way it's supposed to feel. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not supposed to hurt at all. But let's jump into lake surfing because that's something that's super special. I actually did it once when you were there. I talked to you. It was really big. It was like overhead at Carnelian yeah. Bay in North yeah. Lake Tahoe. And it was windy and the waves were like every four seconds. And I, I, don't, I didn't really make a single drop. And all of a sudden, everybody was out not surfing anymore. And it was actually kind of a nice day. It was like a warm day. I thought it was in the fifties. The water was maybe in the fifties or sixties. It wasn't terrible. And, and then we, we all went over to Agate Bay just down the road. Yeah. And it was like five foot, 50 yard long, glassy peeling waves. And it was epic. And I remember, I think I was talking to you after I was like, Scott, is it always like this? And he said something to the tune of like, fuck you miles. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can't you're believe kidding. that you're here. And it's like this. And it's your only, it's the only day I ever surfed the lake. But uh, that, that, and that remains in my mind, the best day ever. Yeah, and the and, Matt and that too. Yeah. And unfortunately I had a uh, horrible wetsuit at the time. Oh, and like from that first session, we were out there, I was out there for maybe two hours. Uh-huh. Like my body was almost shutting down when we got to the glassy lower trestles yeah. break that was <laughs> happening, was. you know, getting that 90 degree wrap. And so I went out there and I think I flail, absolutely flailed in that second session with the best waves I've ever seen on top Tahoe, you know, shoulder head high with absolute glass oh, getting that 90 degree wrap. So I keep hoping for that day, but it's, it's gotta be super pumping to make that happen. Ever since I've gotten a way better wetsuit. Now I get to spend as much time as I can possibly spend out there until my body gets exhausted. And you do spend a lot of time out there. You know, tell how often do you surf the lake and what has to happen to make that Lake Tahoe have waves? Typically it's the front of a good winter storm. You know, winter storms tend to be way more powerful than summer storms. And we don't get many summer storms just the way things work here. So it's usually a cold front moving in. And if it has the right direction, you know, you can get shoulder head high overhead waves on Tahoe. They're just really close together. It looks like to any seasoned surfer, it looks like an absolute mess out there. But (laughs) there are days where you get these waves where you're no longer thinking about the novelty of it, but you're getting legit ocean-like rides and just having a blast out there. And and it's obviously it's wintertime, so it tends to be quite cold. It's always blowing on shore. How cold? Just about always blowing on shore. How cold? You know, it all depends on east wind days. It can be really cold. And that's when you see pictures of the icicles hanging off of the piers where, you know, it might be, I've I've had days where it was probably a wind chill of well below zero just because of the wind chill on the East shore. And that's, that's when you maybe bring some hot water down with you and pour it into your booties and pour it into your gloves before in the, in the middle of sessions. And maybe those sessions don't last so long, but I probably get in like, 12 to 16 days a year. Nice. It all depends wow. what kind of, it all depends what kind of year it is. And, I, and, I'm, and, I'm, and there might be like two or three really good days out of, we've already had maybe three days in October this year that wow. were really good. And nice. so things have started pretty, pretty well, but just about any time a really strong storm system moves in the day before the powder day is a surf day. I love that. And you can often ski that same day too, which is so cool. A lot of people do look at it as a novelty, but I've got a bunch of friends and I who just look at it as another thing we do up here. And it's like the second thing I love behind skiing is is surfing. And I don't get to go to the ocean too much. It's expensive to go to the ocean. It's quite a ways away. And just having that option here in Lake Tahoe is pretty damn sweet. 
it's such a novelty. It's such an anomaly and it's so cool. It's so fun just to watch, man. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, let's jump really quick to your body. So you're 52 years old. Now you've been hucking your meat for decades. You know, how's your body holding? I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm feeling my age. I hurt my back a couple of years ago on a day skiing at Squaw where I was just, it was a firm day and I was jumping off everything. And I never had a specific moment where I hurt myself and I had a great day. It was just firm snow, but no big deal. And I drove home in the car and I could barely get out of my car. Ah. And when I sat on the couch, I could barely move. And ever since then, I, I went to get x-rays. They saw some maybe less spacing between one of the vertebrae and, and an unusual shape. They couldn't say whether there was any fracture or not, but it's a back problem that's plagued, plagued me now for well over a year and a half. And oh, so and I have to really work on it every day. So that hurts. I One of my knees, I blew one ACL when I was 38. I thought I was going to get away with a career without blowing my knees, which I thought was going to be really cool. But then 38, cool. I blew one knee. Two years later, there was a powder day. And I was like, I'm going to not wear a brace for the first time on this left knee. And I blew my right knee, but no. I blew almost everything in it, including oh. roughing my patellar tendon. Jeez. And that one was a long recovery. It's kind of a bit of what John Collinson's going through these days. I was just going to say that. That's what Johnny Collinson just did. Yeah. And so that, that's, that was a harsh one. And I, I feel that. And I will feel that one forever. But now I've got something going on in my left knee, my good knee, which is making me favor that. I don't know what that is. And I just hurt a wrist this year, moving rocks around, building a <laughs> rock wall outside my outside my house. And so I don't know what that is. It seems to be a tendon issue that went popped, but that's a risk. So I can get away without that with skiing. But the, the knees and the back, definitely two main issues. But in the fall, I, I still work really hard to get myself in, sh in shape and get my, I mostly work on hucking legs. I call it three months of desperation where I, I, <laughs> I try to do a lot of squat stuff and a lot of plyometric stuff with leaping and, and kind of simulating landings. So whatever it might be that, you know, is going to get your legs and I, I try to work your core uh, a bit because that's obviously a, a fairly critical part, but really trying to keep the body fairly light while getting the legs strong and ready for ready for sending. Yeah, that's good, man. And I'm curious what you do to stay in good, such good shape. You, you kind of have like a bodybuilder's physique, especially like in 1999 uh, in, uh, your, in your movie when you're launching the potato launcher. so much shit for that. Uh, you're, well, you're ripped, man. I don't know. I, I, would, I would take it in stride. But yeah, so like, what do you do? Like, it looked like, what's going on there? So they're good jeans, good jeans. Thanks to my dad, but I, I put on some doughy pounds in the summertime uh, <laughs> while I'm editing. And then I spent three months of trying to work hard to get in shape for skiing. Unfortunately for me, my speedo, my good speedo time of year is probably the beginning of December when I'm reaching my, my top shape, but just pretty dedicated working out in the fall. Okay. So just weightlifting and really getting after it in the fall. And then, you know, just, just to the side, maybe think of, you know, you and Johnny Collinson had this, a similar injury with blowing almost all of the ligaments in your knee. You know, how do you think Johnny will recover that from that? He's still pretty young. I think he's young and he's obviously a beast. Yeah, so, so I, I think he's, he's going to be all right. That's I think what I want to hear. that process of the, uh, going through two surgeries, which ah. I had to do too. And I was with Michelle Parker at the same time. We kind of right. were buddies in recovery where, we had to have 
all these things done in surgery and then had to spend two months immobilized and then get enough range of motion to get to the ACL surgery. Like that was probably the most painful time of my life is, is trying to get that range of motion oh. of going from six weeks of not moving that leg at all to getting to what is it? 120 degrees. I think before you get your ACL surgery wow. and then going back to square one, but it was brutally painful. And my, my patella is still far lower on that side. Oh, wow. and here we are. It's what, 11 years later, 12 years later. And I still have to work on my knee every day and oh, I have to heat it up and get my kneecap moving and try to get under my kneecap and get like, there's a lot of scar tissue in there and, wow. and stuff. That's quite the pain. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing all that. Yeah. I, I think that Johnny's going to be fine too. Cause I do remember Michelle Parker and I were working and living at the same place in Bariloche, Argentina, when she was kind of going through that. And I remember she was talking about being done with skiing, working for the K2 demo ski team thing, you know, basically like leaving skiing because he was too injured. And then it was right after that, she had a Red Bull helmet and was just dominating the MSP movies. And I, I feel like she's never been better. So I'm yeah. really, I'm really hoping that for Johnny. I, I, Johnny and I kind of shared a big L-shaped couch in a Whistler for two weeks once. The guy is hilarious. He was a yeah. kid. This was before ski movies or anything. He was a kid, but yeah. So, so I'm hoping that, you know, all, all three of you are going to be totally fine. So we'll just jump to uh, one of the last things here, climate change. Uh, climate change is starting to affect snow sports, uh, less freeze days, warmer temperatures, shorter winters. What evidence of climate change have you seen in your lifetime? I think it's hard to say what is attributed to climate change, but in the climate change talk, there's a lot of uh, a lot of this talk about extremes, you know, and, and not necessarily just warming, but to have more weather extremes. And I, I think I see it in the wind. And if the last 12 years in Tahoe is any indication, we've had what maybe three absolutely massive winners. We've had maybe five drought years and some extreme drought years and the rest kind of normal years. So the extremes are outweighing the normal by far. And I think that's one of the things that we see. And, and we really feel like we're watching the snow levels creep up at Palisades Tahoe, you know, where it's getting higher and higher and less good days at the bottom of the mountain and more paces stuff up, stuff up top. And uh, I mean, everyone can attribute it to whatever they want, but it sure seems like we're watching it happening before our, our eyes. And to not accept that is, I think, burying your head in the sand. Yeah. And, I think and obviously, these, there are lots of places where we travel over the world where we see glaciers and man, they are going quickly. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. I think global weirding is a great way to say it. Yeah, uh, because they, things are just getting crazy. And I was looking at the data the other day and at, at, at Palisades Tahoe specifically, we've had two of the last 10 seasons have been average or above average. Everything else, eight have we're been below average. And those two above average, you know, were 2017 and 2019, where we were way above average. You know, if average is 450, these were yeah. in the 700 inches. I think we even got to 800 in 2017. So yeah, it's, it's really as global weirding. Yeah, the fact that we've had three of the biggest years in recorded history in the last 12 is yeah. crazy. And we've had some of the worst drought years in the last 12. There's a lot of stuff where we're setting records in the past decade, you yeah, know, for, and, and why are we setting so many records in the past decade? Oh, I agree. It's, it's some of the very wettest or snowiest winters and some of the very driest winters on record. Like yeah. you said, in the last dozen years. 
And it's concerning living here because Palisades Tahoe is one of the most likely ski areas to be really beaten down by climate change because we're always we're always on the the cusp of getting rain or snow as it is. Mm-hmm. So a, a temperature or like a, of a one degree climb or two degree climb is huge. And I really think this could be one of the first places to be defunct because of climate change. I sure hope not, but I think that you're right. Yeah. Um, so the last question is about COVID. You know, I just like to, COVID has been hard for all of us. It probably was really hard for you guys making ski movies. And, you know, so, so what have been some of the silver linings, the positives that you've experienced during the COVID pandemic? Hanging at home? <laughs> I don't know. I, I like being at home and I have a real tough time being away from home when conditions are good here. So there's definitely been been more time like that. God, it's hard to find positives out of, out of all this. Like I'm, I'm a firm believer in a lot of the steps we've taken to, to try to minimize spread and all that. So I'm behind it, but I can also hate the whole process at the same time. It's a challenge. Um, it's, it's not like any of us want to be wearing masks and, and we, we don't want to be going through all this crap. You know, we, we want to be living our lives just normally. I, I've watched it or I've got a cousin who just got out of an ICU in Utah. Ooh. And I've got an uncle who just went on a ventilator in Utah. Oh, no, um, I'm so sorry. And, and they were strong anti-vaxxers, you know, and, and now they're suffering. So it's, you, you know, we're, we're seeing it still going. I don't like it, but I'll keep taking the steps to keep my family safe. Good. Well, thanks for sharing that. I'm so sorry about your family members. Hopefully they both uh, through well. The very last question is, uh, what's next for you? What's next for you and your life's journey? It's, it's hard to say. <laughs> I've been doing the same thing for so long and I just keep doing the same thing. So it's probably going to stay the same. <laughs> uh, I do. One of my goals in life is, is to shoot surfing at some point and tell some different stories. And uh, I have some ideas along those lines, but I can't quite put them out there yet, but that is an aspiration to, to be around the water a little bit more. I hope and, you do that. I yeah, love I've got surfing. some hawking to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love uh, surfing. So I'd love to see you do a surf movie. How much longer do you think you'll do the MSP editing thing? Oh, I don't freaking know, man. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. It's just, it's just too good a lifestyle. It's just, it's really hard to raise a family on to afford raising a family with what I'm doing, but I love it too much. So there's a lot of selfishness in there for me of just doing the same thing because I get to travel the world with really cool people and see some of the most amazing places and some of the most amazing stuff go down. And that's really hard to break away from. Like I, I see a lot of people in the ski industry, like Nick Martini and Clayton Billa, and those guys all came up as street skiers. And now they've got these really successful things they're doing in bigger productions. But I just have a really hard time leaving behind the mountain lifestyle and skiing whenever I can and surfing on the lake whenever I can. So I just keep on doing it. I, I think the lifestyle and the, and the family that you've created are just spectacular, man. So I think I think that's a good stay in the course is a good thing for you. I don't think I heard anything. No, uh, well, I appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome, man. Well, Scott, that's all I've got for you, man. Do you have anything else you'd like to add here at the end of the show? John, no. I just hope everyone has a good winter. Stay safe and uh, send it. Send it. I like that's it. That's about it. 
Scott, great chatting with you today. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, have a great rest of your day and I'll, I'll look forward to skiing with you in Tahoe soon, man. Thank you so much for listening to the Snow Brains podcast. If you liked this podcast, please share with your friends and family and please subscribe. To find out more about Snowbrains, please visit us at snowbrains.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Snowbrains. Today's Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Tamarack Resort. For the free spirits that hear the call of the undiscovered and believe the future truly is boundless, Tamarack Resort is the place for you. And we can't wait to welcome you with arms wide open. Find it together at TamarackIdaho.com. Today's Snowbrains podcast is brought to you by Alta. With an 84-year history, Alta is a place that is steeped in history and tradition. We're not talking about your grandfather's or grandmother's mothball ski sweater tradition. We're talking about the birthplace of avalanche research in North America kind of tradition. Alta is a place where five independent lodges still offer the tradition of family-style dinners and a place that has ski bars that generations of skiers have frequented. This episode of the Snow Brains podcast was edited by Jared White, music by Chad Crouch, and I'm your host, producer, and creator, Miles Clark.